you for the truths of your word. I pray that they will impact us and that we would have ears to hear what you have to say. In your name, amen. Well, we know that the churches that we're going to look at today, certainly they met in homes. They didn't have, you know, church bulletins like we do. And there's been some interesting mistakes made in church bulletins. For instance, the the fasting and prayer conference includes meals. Well, that's not a mistake. It's just ironic comments. Uh, remember in prayer the many who are sick in our community. Smile at someone who is hard to love. Say hell to someone who doesn't care much about you. <laughs> a bean supper will be held Tuesday evening in the church hall. Music will follow. Mm. Uh, at the evening service tonight, the topic will be what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. So. <laughs> The ladies of the church have a cast off a clothing of every kind. They may be seen in the basement on Friday afternoon. <laughs> and my last two favorites, the low self-esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back doors. <laughs> and the Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use the large double doors at the side entrance. <laughs> oh, funny. Anyways. Moving on to more serious. Most of us can relate to the thrill of meeting someone special and then having that relationship grow and blossom into love. You remember how all your thoughts seem to be consumed with that person that you were growing to love. You can't wait to speak to them, to see them, to just be together. You go about your daily activities, but your heart is constantly longing to be with that one that you love. There is a passion, there is an intensity as love grows and we usually see this, especially on a wedding day, where two young people who believe they can survive anything as long as they're together. But how sad to fast forward many times to the future and find the love that was once a bright flame has been snuffed out. It requires a lifetime of effort, dying to yourself, diligence and commitment to keep that first love alive. It's so easy to begin to take for granted the person we love and we begin to drift away when they are no longer the person who thrills us like they once did. And just as this is true in the area of marriage and romance, it is certainly true in our relationship with Jesus Christ. He doesn't change. He doesn't move away. But the cares of this world and the daily grind often cause us to move away from him. We don't have that desperate need to spend time with him like we once had. Our sinful attitudes uh, can dull our spiritual senses and our hearts grow cool. And just like a poor marriage where everything can look okay on the outside, and yet the reality can be that the love has grown cold. So in the Church of Jesus Christ, our congregations busily carrying out service, yet they have hearts that have lost their first love. When you think about the first church that we're going to look at at Ephesus, you have to be amazed at the great background that they have as teachers in their past history. The Apostle Paul, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila were there, Timothy, and the Apostle John. We talk about great leadership and great teaching. But there is still no substitute for a heart that has a passionate love for Jesus Christ. We see in this church the truth of Jesus being able to look straight into the heart of people while people can be fooled by outward appearances. As we observe the x-ray vision of Jesus into the heart of the believers at Ephesus, we must also allow him to deal with our hearts as well. The question for each of us then is, do we have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to us? 
Are you willing to see in yourself what Jesus sees? Will these words be deflected to someone else you think needs to hear them? Or will you and I humbly bend our hearts and recognize things that need to change in our lives? It is a bit of a challenge to attempt to cover everything in these letters to the four churches in a 30-minute time slot. So I will talk quickly and you try to listen quickly, okay? So the church at Ephesus begins with the angel or messenger, most likely a human messenger or pastor of the church, is to communicate these truths to the church. It is Jesus Christ who is in control, even though he places human leadership to lead the church, ultimately is he who is in control of his blood-bought church. He sees all, he knows all, he is the one to sustain the church, and he knows every person's heart condition in his church. So Jesus describes the condition of this church. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and not growing weary. They were doing so much so well. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. So Jesus begins with the very positive truths about these believers. They are busy in ministry. They are steadfast. They are toiling. The word toil speaks of working to the point of utter exhaustion. They had countless ministries. They experienced persecution. And yet they just didn't quit. Remember the city of Ephesus was the center of worship for Diana. Uh, It was one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Diana. She was thought to be a fertility goddess. And the temple then was filled with prostitutes and orgies of all kinds of gross pagan practices. However, the church at Ephesus stayed pure, did not endure evil men or their influence. They dealt with sin when it showed up in their midst. And while busy for Christ, they also kept sinful corruption from infiltrating their church. They didn't tolerate any false self-acclaimed apostles. We're not exactly sure who these Nicolaitans were. Uh, These appear to have been some group of men who came into the church to try to dominate, who promoted immorality. So to look at this church is to be impressed. But what we can't see is the hearts of the people who make up the church. Only Jesus can. So they had such sound doctrine. But what Jesus saw was the reality that they had lost their first love for him. They still loved him, but not with that passion that they had had at first. The thrill of coming to faith in Jesus, the warmth of love and devotion, it just wasn't there anymore. The question must be asked then of each of us, are we like those in Ephesus? Active, serving, doctrinal purity, separated from sin, but our love is just simply not what it used to be. And how could you tell if you've lost your first love? Well, do you love to even talk about Jesus? Do you serve because it's expected that you do this or just because you really love him? Is it easier to talk more about the church issues than the person of Jesus? Is studying his word something that has become a chore rather than a joy? Consumed with doing everything right in the church and at the same time not consumed with Jesus himself? Well, so what should we do if this describes us in some way? The call to repent is seen in verse 5, and clearly that is the remedy to correct the problem. Remember from where you have fallen. Think back to your early days of being a new believer. Remember the way it used to be when you had the light come on and realized he has forgiven you all your sins, set you free 
free from fear, free from the fear of death, eager to tell anybody who'd listen the truth that you've learned. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Return and do the deeds you did at first. Time in the word is your priority, studying his word and necessity for survival, sharing his truth with others, having true fellowship as you speak with others about what he's doing in your life this week. Meaningful times given to prayer, worship in your heart at home, where you're all alone and no one sees but you and him, as well as corporate worship and the desire to always obey. If you fail to repent, then what? Well, the church is removed. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So the church may keep doing all the right things, but if their heart isn't right with Jesus, they will lose their effectiveness and they'll lose that testimony as a light for him. Today, Ephesus is a place you can visit. It is nothing but ancient ruins. For years, they still did exist until they lost their light as a gospel witness because of their loveless heart. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us of the truth that without love, we are nothing. So the challenge given to the church, this message is for your church and for you if you are part of a church. Even if others don't respond, you need to. Be willing to stand alone as you return to that life of close fellowship with the Lord. Jesus ends with a promise that should encourage all of us to repent and return to our first love. To overcomers, the tree of life that was once in the Garden of Eden, but is now in God's presence, will be ours to eat. Revelation 22.2. In other words, there is coming a day when we are going to enjoy perfect love, perfect fellowship, in his presence, in heaven. So why not start loving him like that right now? The question is, have people or things or unrepented of sin stolen your joy um, so that your love for him is just not the priority in your life anymore? Then I urge you to examine your own heart and to repent. And that brings us then to the next church. It's Smyrna, the persecuted church. The background of the city to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, it was the custom in this culture that once a year, everyone was required to give allegiance to Caesar by saying, Caesar is Lord, and to offer a sacrifice then in his name. History reports that only 60 years after this letter had arrived at this church, uh, the people were gathered in the public games, and a mob began to scream, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be searched for. Christians were called atheists, and Polycarp, who had been discipled by John, was their pastor and their spiritual leader. The police were sent to find the 86-year-old man. He was taken into the arena and given the choice to curse the name of Christ and make the sacrifice to Caesar or die. And Polycarp responded, he said, 80 and six years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When told he would be burned to death, he replied, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and then is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked in judgment to come, and it is everlasting punishment. Why are you still waiting? Come and do what you will. So when they had went to tie him up at the stake, he told them, Leave me as I am, for, I, for he who gives me power to endure the flame will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, even without the security you will give by your nails. And so they left him loosely bound in the flames. This martyr was a young man when this letter that we're looking at arrived at his church. And as a result, 60 years later, he was able to face death bravely as a martyr. This particular town was inland from the sea, but not far from Ephesus. Yet what a different church this was. Ephesus was their mother church that was busy and thriving. Smyrna was a smaller offshoot, but a pure and godly church. The suffering church is a pure church because you know what? People who aren't truly living for Jesus don't stick around at church when it can cost you your life. Uh, let us look at some of the truths about this persecuted church, which has been true throughout all of church history. It may not be long before it's true of the church in America. We may, be, we may one day join the churches that are suffering right now all around the world, Russia, China, Ethiopia, Uganda, Zimbabwe, Egypt, Pakistan, Eritrea, which is right next to Ethiopia. They just a few weeks ago arrested 25 more believers worshiping, eight of whom were children. They put them in shipping containers and in underground cells. And there is no trial. There's no nothing. There's people been there 20 years. Jesus then immediately identifies himself as the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. He's reminding those who suffer, he is the eternal one. He is the sovereign one. Therefore, those who suffer are doing so for the one true God. This pagan community was famous for a street paved with gold to the temple of Apollo, Aphrodite, Zeus, and others. Uh, they were all set up on a hill, and this gold street went around the, high, the hill, and it was filled with all kinds of idolatrous temples. But now the one who was dead and came to life is speaking to them. In other words, Jesus is making it clear to them that he knew exactly what they were going through. And though you may be afraid of possible death, remember, he says, I died for the truth too, and I am alive. Christ identifies himself as the one who can give them victory over the fear of death and death itself. If there comes a day when we find ourselves imprisoned falsely and unjustly for our faith, like those I just mentioned, then we need to remember that Jesus understands what it is to be falsely accused. He understands what it is to die at the hands of wicked men. But the grave is not the end. What comforting words that Christ died for this truth and he is concerned about the suffering church of those who are following him. In the heart of Christ for the persecuted churches in verse 9, Jesus knows all about their suffering at the church of Smyrna and every other church that has suffered since then. He reminds them that he knows your tribulation. The word tribulation means to crush beneath the weight. These believers were under constant pressure. Unlike Ephesus, this city still exists today because this city was one of, it is one of the largest in Turkey today. They were loyal at that time to the Roman Empire and they became the center of emperor worship. 
And any who refused to publicly confess allegiance to Caesar, they were simply crushed. To refuse to acknowledge Caesar was to be excluded from the guilds, which resulted in total economic sanctions against believers. So Jesus said to them, I know your poverty, but you really are rich. Even if you have nothing by this world's standards to have Jesus makes you rich in the things that really matter. Not only did they have persecution because of this emperor worship, but they were also suffered from the Jewish community and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. We know from the birth of the church in the book of Acts that the church of Jesus was persecuted greatly by the religious Jewish leaders. Of course, all the first believers in Jesus were Jewish as they had come to believe he is the promised Messiah and that trying to keep a law is not what will bring you salvation. But the nation as a whole followed their religious leaders and rejected Jesus. And they continued in their belief of uh, works salvation. But in John 15 and 16, Jesus made it clear that a time is coming when religious people think that by killing you, they are actually worshiping and serving God. Some of the greatest atrocities through the centuries have been done in the name of God, even in the name of Jesus. And they believe that they're serving God by killing people, calling them heretics. This becomes the place then where Satan dwells, having abandoned God and his truths for Satan lies. This can be said for the many liberal churches today as well. In the midst of persecution of all types, what a comfort to know Jesus cares about the tribulation each of his own are enduring. It may be you have experienced hostility from family or friends who mock your faith or who are really annoyed at you for taking a stand with truth instead of taking a stand with our culture. But Jesus knows personally what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused and persecuted. The commands to the persecuted church, Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. I mean, fear is a natural thing <laughs> when you're dragged into an arena. But he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The reference uh, to 10 days in prison and then death speaks of a place where the accused were waiting sentencing, resulting in death or exile. They didn't have correctional institutions like we have today. And fear, as you know, is our great enemy and it destroys God's peace in our hearts and lives. Jesus commands us not to fear what man can do to us. The next command is be faithful until death. So when we trust Jesus, he sustains us so that we do not need to fear people. We notice that it is Satan behind persecution, but he is limited because he can never destroy a believer spiritually. Those who die for the sake of Christ are given a reward called the crown of life. The imagery uh, of a crown is taken from the crown given to those who won athletic events. In Smyrna, our images of faithful servants of the city were put on a coin having a laurel wreath on their head, as well as athletes. Jesus is saying that those who remain faithful to him in death will receive an imperishable crown. It's not going to dry up and fall apart. You only have to read Fox's Book of Martyrs to realize God gives his grace to suffer and die for him at the moment when it is needed. And I have read that in the last hundred years, there have been more Christians put to death than in all the centuries together before that. So the challenge to the persecuted church, he who has an ear, let him hear. Every individual is to listen closely to this message. 
Those who know Jesus are overcomers. And physical death, you know what? It's only death that they're going to ever experience. Revelation 20:14 tells us hell, the lake of fire, that's the second death. Believers may face persecution and even be put to death, but it means the instant promotion to heaven. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you really ought to be afraid of the fact that there is a second death, and it is eternal separation from God, paying for your own debt of sin in a place called hell. Make sure you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior because he paid your sin debt when he hung on the cross. He took the wrath of God for every sin you've ever committed. And when you turn from your sin and put your faith in him alone for salvation, he gives you a new heart, a new life, a new birth. That brings us to the church that compromised in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So let's look at these words of Jesus to this church, because you know the word of God is living. So we're studying a book that is alive, and it is sharp. Jesus is described as having a sharp two-edged sword because that's what the word of God does. It cuts, it's like a surgeon to cut out sin. The Roman Empire had given this city the rare power of capital punishment, which, and, which is the symbol of the sword in Romans 13.4. So the sword pronounces judgment. Rome had authority to judge any Christian and to kill them at any moment's notice. But believers needed to understand that true judgment and absolute authority, it may look like it belonged to Rome, but in reality, it is only in Jesus. The sharp two-edged sword stands for the word of God, which God is going to use in cutting out sin. His truth exposes falsehood as it cuts deep. And this church needed to hear this. They did have some good qualities, but there was this big problem that wasn't uh, obvious, one that needed, I think it was obvious, but one that needed to be cut out completely, and that is what God's word does. So Christ begins by saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So this is a city, Pergamum, headquarters for Satan, uh, his center of operation in the first century. We aren't told where his throne is today, but obviously his throne is in many places where every kind of cult and evil is going on today. We know in 1 Peter 5, 8 that Satan roams about the earth as a roaring lion, seeking those he might devour. So this city was the center for all kinds of religious activity. An altar to Zeus there was 40 feet high, and it looked like a great throne on the hillside. There were continual sacrifices offered to Zeus. The city was also a center for, of, for the god of healing, and his temples were the closest thing to a hospital at that time. The symbol of this god was a serpent around a branch, the same symbol used in the medical community today. 
And inside this temple were scores of snakes that were non-poisonous, and people would lay on the floor and were healed if the snake touched them. Well, first of all, if it were me, I would have died of a heart attack before the snakes ever came over. And besides all of this, this was a center of worship for the Roman emperor. So there were other temples and gods as well. So when Jesus said, I know that where you live, Satan reigns, <laughs> he was quite accurate. He was acknowledging what a tough place this is to live a godly life, to stand up and be a light. Satanic pressures can come to any believer regardless of where they live or who they work for. But Jesus reminds all his followers that wherever he has placed you, even if it's at Satan's headquarters, you can still be faithful. You hold fast to my name. Despite the opposition that this church faced, this little church remained true to Jesus. They did not deny him or his name. We read that there had been a time in the past when one of their members had been killed for his faith and because of his loyalty to Jesus. Antipas proved faithful to death. This church stood strong under attack and it remained loyal to Jesus. Satan's tactics had failed from putting pressure from without on this church. That was his strategy. So now he's turning the strategy, tragedy, strategy into inwardly trying to attack this church. So the condemnation is seen in verse 14 and 15. Satan sent leaders with erroneous beliefs, the teaching of Balaam and doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of Balaam was to corrupt from within and pollute God's people from purity. Apparently, some in this church had stopped separating themselves from the behavior of the culture around them. Like many believers today, honestly, who may be active in their church on a given Sunday, yet live like a pagan in their personal lives the rest of the week. Satan targets every evangelical church, and if external pressures don't work, he sends in people to lead others into maybe sexual sin, erroneous doctrine, allowing for sinful behavior, not dealing with it, or confusion or division or whatever technique he works, tries to work. These Nicolaitans are the same as those in Ephesus. They seem to be those who came along and taught that it is all right to be involved in immorality. The correction for this church is seen in verse 16. Change your attitude and thinking and repent. If your behavior is contrary to scripture and to holy living, the message is repent and then change. Evil practices cannot just be ignored, pushed under the rug. And what if there is no change? Christ is coming to make war, verse 16b. He comes in judgment to cut these compromising people out of the church. It may come through death, it may come through illness, but God will chasten his own if they continue to stay in sin. This is clearly taught to us in 1 Corinthians 11, where we're told, examine yourself before you take communion. Some of you, in not doing that, have died and others are ill. So the challenge to the church is seen in verse 17. This is an individual challenge. Even if no one else in your church stands up for the truth, the hidden manna was seen in the Old Testament for Israel in the wilderness, but they had complained and compromised. God has spiritual food for every believer and eternity in heaven where we'll be properly taken care of and nourished and cared for by Jesus. There will be perfect fellowship with him one day, feasting in heaven. So forget about these pagan feasts on earth. And then the white stone likely refers to the uh, one of the or two customs uh, where it was used for a ticket to have an admission into a feast or some, I read also, uh, 
when a judge said, you're innocent, a white stone was shown. At any rate, on this white stone ticket is a new name, representing our new character in Christ, allowing us to feast with him forever. The word new does not mean, as one commentator put, uh, new in contrast with old in time, but new in the sense of a different quality. So the new name on the stone is thought by some to be the name of Christ, who later says, I will write on him my new name, Revelation 3.12. So it's only known to him who receives it. We will retain our individuality in heaven and comprehend Christ in such a new and perfect way, but just as an adopted child is given a new name, so each believer will have admission into heaven and glory with a new name that will reflect God's amazing love for us. That brings us to the church at Thyatira that refused to deal with sin in their midst. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds, that your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than those at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she doesn't want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her in her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So this city was rather insignificant compared to the others we've seen so far. Yet it had a church with some serious problems. I remind you again here that a little bit of every one of these churches we're looking at has been in every church through every age in time. So we've seen uh, maybe a church has not enough love, it's orthodox but loveless, it's suffering, or it's loyal but compromising. So let's see briefly at this next church what it resembles uh, your church or mine. He begins by stating the son of God because he wants him to know that he is God. He is about to assert his authority as God with this church, unlike any of the other letters we've seen so far. His eyes are like a flame of fire, tells them that he is the son of God. He's able to see right through everything. Nothing escapes his sight. There is no sin hidden. He sees through all of our rationalizations, ladies. His eyes penetrate like an all-consuming fire. His eyes have wrath concerning what he sees. And what he sees in this church is sin. And his feet are described like burnished bronze, meaning he's ready to come and trample and deal with this sin. This reminds us very clearly that Jesus does indeed love his own, but he hates sin and he will not tolerate it in his church. You may be able to fool people for a while, but eventually he will deal with you, even if nobody else sees so the church's condition, they were commended for six really outstanding virtues that are so commendable. Good deeds, love, faith, service to people. They were perseverance, persevering. They were loyal to Christ. And their deeds were greater than they were at the beginning of their salvation. So they had spiritual progress as they were serving the Lord. They had the love of, that Ephesus lacked. They had the perseverance that Smyrna had and the faith of Pergamum. And I'm encouraged here by the truth that Jesus deals with us and gives us time to repent. And that he actually recognizes when we do things that are right, not just all the things that we do wrong. As people, I think we tend to be very negative by our nature and focus on all the negative things. But Christ sees 
the good things as well as the negative. Uh, so the condemnation of this church with all that they've been going, th- um, all that they had going for them, how could such blatant evil be allowed to continue and be okay there? Most likely Jezebel's not her real name, but obviously a name given to her because she was similar to the Old Testament lady named Jezebel, who was a pagan queen who worshipped Baal and tried to introduce her false worship of Baal to everybody in Israel. She wanted Israel to have the same God as her. And so there was a woman in this church who was teaching and leading believers astray in idolatry and immorality. In the church of Thyatira, they had labor unions, and with that came seasonal festivals that really were nothing more than sexual orgies. And if these Christians didn't want to belong to the guilds, they would suffer greatly economically. Apparently then, this Jezebel came along and falsely said that it's okay for believers to continue in the trade guilds or be involved in idolatry and fornication. Whatever rationalizations she used, people followed. Well, and let's face it, if somebody says something that we want to do is okay, we're going to gravitate toward that person. Yes, I heard a Bible teacher say that was okay. (laughs) Anyway, so they followed this woman. And the church was tolerating this sin. A church must have love, but it also must have sound doctrine. And if there is true love for each other, then false teaching cannot be tolerated. Why? Because it hurts the believer. So the correction for this church, they need to repent for tolerating Jezebel. And Jezebel herself and all those who have been involved with her need to repent. So we see in verse 21, God is so gracious. He says, I'll give time to Jezebel to repent, but she didn't want to. Because God is patient and doesn't usually strike in judgment immediately like he did with Ananias and Sapphira, oftentimes people mistake his patience to mean he isn't going to do anything about it. Well, we see that God will bring severe judgment to those who profess to know him but disregard his standards. Again, 1 Corinthians 11. So blatant sin and defiance will end in Christ dealing with it severely. As a famous preacher once teaching on Jezebel, the Old Testament said, there is a payday someday. If the church refuses to discipline itself, Christ then will do it. But what about the remnant who weren't involved in all this? The situation in this church had gone so far that the remnant of faithful believers, what could they do? This church was passed. How do you discipline the whole church? So the Lord tells them to hang on until he comes in judgment. Unlike today, they couldn't just go down the street to a different church. There was only one church in town, and this Jezebel and all her cohorts were in charge. So the courage then for the church, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. And I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is referring to his reign in the kingdom age, that thousand-year reign after the tribulation is over. And at that time, those of us who know him will reign with him. And people who come into that time will be regular mortal people. And when they sin, it will be judged with immediately. There will be no more Jezebel characters that will be leading and what is the morning star? Revelation twenty-two sixteen tells us it is Jesus himself. At the dawning of the kingdom age, he gives himself to his own. So what, uh, when, then, when that time comes, then we'll be with him as he comes back to rule and reign on the earth. So the challenge, and I, I'm done. The challenge, ladies, is this. 
The message to Thyatira is a message of purity. Do not tolerate sin. Do not participate in sin. Keep true to the Lord in holiness and truth and obedience and purity. You can't stop, stop someone else's behavior, but you can deal with your own heart and guard your own heart. So I hope that as you leave here now that you deal honestly with some of the sins that may have stuck out in you if the Spirit of the Lord has taken His Word and stuck it in your heart. Don't be guilty of finding a way to do the things you want to do by twisting Scripture or rationalizing the way why it's okay. Our focus instead needs to be on Him and His glory and a willingness to suffer any injustice or discomfort for staying true to Him. So guard your hearts, ladies. If you've seen anything, I, I beg you to please make time today to just spend alone with him and repent. Father, I thank you for the truths of your word. I thank you for these churches that reflect churches of every age. I pray, Lord, that we would honor you, that we would be uh, glorifying you in the way we speak and what we do and how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.